Well, good morning. It's good to be with you again today. It's uh, been a while. I have not been here since you have renovated the sanctuary, and it really looks nice. I love the, the natural light that comes in on a beautiful Sunday morning. We will be continuing in Ephesians this morning, so if you'll be turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the psalmist says that the unfolding of your word gives light. We pray that by your spirit, you would so unfold your word to us this morning that we might behold the light of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we behold his image, may we be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why is bacon so good? <laughs> now, not the question whether bacon is good, because I don't know that I've ever met any human being who would answer that question negatively, but have you ever asked yourself, why is bacon so good? I mean, I know it nourishes me, if I don't eat too much of it, but, but why does the same thing that brings me nourishment also bring me pleasure? and delight in its taste? Or, or why is it, if we want to be a little more philosophical, that when I take the bacon, and I'm sorry to be doing this at 11 a.m., but why is it when we take the bacon and fix a couple of pieces of nice toast and spread some Duke's mayo on there and get the lettuce and the tomato, why is it that all these different things, bread, vegetables, Bacon, why do they all taste so good together? Well, the, the answer, of course, comes from a lot of different things, but supremely, it's because God is one. And all the different things in the world are the product of his hand. Uh, the reason that different things look good together, the reason that different notes sound good together, and yes, the reason that things like bacon and mayo and lettuce and tomato taste good together is because they're all the product 
of one God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has made them all for his glory and our good. And that's what we want to talk about this morning, the unity of the world that God has made, specifically the unity of the church and how it reflects his unity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Of course, unity is not something that we can take for granted in the world that we live in. You wake up in the morning, you turn on the news, and we're in the middle of a war overseas. And daily, we see the destruction that comes from those reports. Move a little closer to home, and you'd have to be living in the utter darkness to not realize that uh, Jewish political analyst Yuval Levin is right. We live in a fractured republic as well. We have lost a sense of a shared story as a larger nation. Therefore, we've lost a sense of a shared hope and vision. The challenge, of course, is, is that for all of our fragmentation and fracturing, for all of our disharmony and disunity, we, we, we can't stop longing for unity. We still want to belong. We still want to find a community where we can band together, but, but we've lost the thread. And unfortunately, we see this too often in the church as well. We imitate and mimic the world's disharmony and disunity. There are certainly things which should divide us as God's people. Paul says sometimes it's necessary that there is disunity when there are matters of great doctrinal and moral consequence. But the sad thing, and, and the thing that really has frankly shocked me over the past few years, is just how trivial reasons we could find to be divided over, right? And, and this is uh, the sad, sad thing. It dishonors the Lord, it divides the body, and it shows a sorry witness to the world. Well, Paul in Ephesians chapter four asserts that because God is one, he has called his people to unity. And specifically, he's called them to unity by calling them to cultivate certain virtues that promote unity. The central appeal of our text is about our way of life, our walk. Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's interesting that in the book of Ephesians, Paul uses a number of different metaphors to describe the Christian life. In chapter four and chapter five, he uses the metaphor of clothing, telling us to put off certain practices, to put on other practices. And, and this is a way in Paul's mind, he says in baptism, we have been clothed with Christ. And so we are called to Christ likeness in our way of life. But in Ephesians chapter four, he uses a different metaphor. It is the metaphor of walking. And of course, this is one of scripture's favorite ways of describing the Christian life. Think of how Psalm one begins. How blessed is the man who does not what? Walk in the counsel of the ungodly. And this 
uh, metaphor of the Christian life is appropriate because not only does it suggest that there's a right path and there's a wrong path, right, but it also reminds us that the, the life that God calls us to has a destination. It has a, a point, and this is what Paul wants to remind us in this passage. The God who has loved us in Christ, the God who has redeemed us through the precious blood of Christ, and who has come to indwell us by the Spirit of Christ, calls us to walk in a holy way, not simply for the sake of our outward witness, not simply for the sake of our mutual upbuilding, but ultimately because the end of the Christian life is to glorify and honor our triune God. The Christian life, Paul says, has a point. And this is what the walking metaphor reminds us. Well, in this passage, Paul encourages us to, to cultivate a number of virtues that will promote a life of unity, a life that is worthy of the calling which we receive, that is worthy of the God, the triune God, who has called us to himself. I want to unpack this passage in seven propositions this morning that we'll look at under three main headings. The first heading is the context of Paul's appeal, the context of Paul's appeal to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. The second heading is the content of Paul's appeal. And then the third heading is the confidence of Paul's appeal. So first, the context of Paul's appeal and, and the first three propositions. Proposition number one, Paul appeals to a church on the wrong side of history from the wrong side of history. So that's something about our context as Christians. Notice how Paul introduces himself in verse one. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, called by the will of God the Father to preach Christ the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit, has found himself on the wrong side of history. The world has not received his message. The world has not celebrated his apostleship. But in fact, he's in prison for it. And this is what he reminds the Ephesian congregation when he writes them. And of course, part of the reason he reminds them this is that they too are not on the right side of history. They no longer walk, as we'll see in a moment, under the power of the prince of this world. They no longer keep in step with the spirit of the age. And yet, this is the context within which Paul makes his appeal. While we not may not live in the right cultural moment for godliness, this in no way diminishes Paul's calling. Second proposition, Paul contrasts the church's present calling with its former manner of life. You remember how chapter 2 begins, and it uses the same walking metaphor to describe not our Christian life, but our former manner of life. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead. But you were dead men walking. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Note the contrast here. Not only did they have a former manner of life, but they, they used to have a different God, the prince of the power of the air. And rather than living lives of virtue, they lived vicious lives and the passions of their flesh. And Paul wants to say, that was your former way of life. Now we need to walk a new path. Last thing to note about the context of Paul's appeal is that he addresses the church's common calling before he addresses the church's particular callings. In verse 7, and really the rest of, of this opening kind of paragraph of chapter 4 down to verse 16, Paul is going to turn to not what binds us together as the people of God, but what distinguishes us from one another, the various callings the various gifts that we have. Some are apostles, some are pastors, some are teachers. To use the body metaphor, some of us are hands, some of us are knees, some of us are necks, right? We all have a different role to fill in the body of Christ. And, and, and those different callings bring with them different gifts, they bring with them different activities, they, they bring with them, at least immediately, different purposes, right? And, and any congregation of any size immediately see that God has given us a diverse body with different gifts and different callings. And so Paul is going to talk about that. But before he talks about our particular callings, he wants to talk about our common calling. Why is that? Because for Paul, it's these unifying virtues, humility, gentleness, patience, and so forth, that are essential to all the different parts of the body working together. If we don't have our common calling in place, then we won't do our particular callings well. They'll, they'll turn into reasons to fight rather than reasons to build, right? They'll turn into grounds for competition and comparing ourselves with one each other rather than reasons for mutual celebrating what God has given us. Well, note second, the content of Paul's appeal. And here we have the fourth, fifth, and sixth propositions. Fourth, walk with all humility and gentleness. Walk with all humility and gentleness. As those loved by the Father, as those redeemed by the Son, Paul says that by his Holy Spirit, we have been endowed with certain virtues, certain forms of human excellence that we are to cultivate in community with each other. Now, humility, gentleness, patience, and so forth, these are all virtues that do concern our relationship with God. They're virtues that concern our relationship with the world. But here in this passage, he's really focusing on how these virtues express themselves and should express themselves in our relationships with God each other. So let's look first at humility and gentleness. 
these virtues, all of them, I think, in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, are different forms of one virtue, the virtue of love. These are the different colors, if you will, that love takes on when, when it is reformed and renewed through the Spirit's indwelling presence. When we come to love God above all things, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, when we're restored to a love of neighbor as ourselves, that love takes form in us in humility and gentleness. Well, what is humility? What is gentleness? Well, these are both forms of what we might call moderate self-regard. Moderate self-regard. And, and, and that makes sense if we think about the opposites of humility and gentleness. The opposite of humility, of course, is what? Pride. And what is pride? It's inflated self-regard, right? It's, it's thinking too much of ourselves, not only in relationship to God, this in many regards is the primal sin we see in the garden, pride. But it's also thinking too much of ourselves in relationship to our neighbor. Well, what about gentleness? Well, it's interesting that in the New Testament, humility and gentleness are often paired together, and I think there's a reason for this. Gentleness in the ancient world and in Scripture as well is the virtue that tempers or moderates anger. Now, Scripture acknowledges that there is such a thing as righteous anger, right? There, there is a just uh, hatred for what is evil and what is wrong, right? There, there is an awareness, moreover, when we have been wronged and there is a desire for justice. But, as we all know, most of us find it hard to, to find the right balance when it comes to righteous anger. And, and more often than not, it's that sinful, excessive, explosive, burned the forest down fire of anger that we struggle with. Well, gentleness is the virtue that tempers anger, that moderates anger. And, and, and once you realize it, you see how pride and, and, and sinful anger versus humility and gentleness go together, right? If pride is an inflated self-regard, what's one of the surest things that it's going to lead to a, a cranky, angry, always irritable person? They think too much of themselves, right? And so every little wrong, right, is an occasion for divine vengeance, right? Every little misstep brings forth an overreaction, not even an equal and opposite reaction. Well, Paul understands that pride, anger, these are community-destroying vices. And if we're going to be able to work together as the people of God, if we're to fulfill the calling that God has called us to fulfill, then we need to cultivate humility. A proper self-regard as the children of God and we need to cultivate gentleness. Paul, describing these virtues in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 5, not by their name, but by what they hold in common, love, says, love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. In other words, it's not proud. 
it is not irritable or resentful. In other words, it's not characterized by excessive, sinful anger. Well, this is what Paul calls us to cultivate, humility, gentleness. But look also, fifth proposition, he calls us to walk also with patience, bearing with or literally putting up with one another in love, tolerating one another in love. Now, if humility and gentleness are how love teaches us to kind of temper our own self-regard, not to think too much of ourselves, right? Not to overreact with anger when we are wronged or when we witness wrongs. Patience, toleration, bearing one another. This is a virtue that really helps us to moderate our relationships with others. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Christians will offend you. Did you know that? Did you know that? Did you know the people of God, though their sins have been forgiven, they've been regenerated by the Spirit? Do you know that the people of God are going to offend you? They're going to offend you for big things. They're going to offend you for little things. And Paul is, in a sense, saying, before we get started on any of this, I want you to realize this is going to happen. Don't be surprised, but rather be prepared, right? Set your heart that you're going to respond to the challenges that inevitably arise within a congregation. Set in your heart that you're going to respond with patience, bearing with one another in love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, again, summarizing this virtue, love is patient and kind. Now, of course, cultivating love in this shape, cultivating love in this form, in this color, requires a lot of wisdom, right? Sometimes patience with one another requires the love that cultivates, the the love that covers a multitude of sins, right? Uh, This little thing that somebody said, this little habit that somebody has, it's an annoyance, and love just teaches us to essentially observe it, but we don't need to say anything about it. We keep going, we move on. Love covers a multitude of sins. But there are other cases where wisdom dictates that this is not something that we can just ignore or tolerate, right? But, but, but something else has to happen. You remember Jesus is asked in the Gospels, what is the greatest commandment? And of course, the answer is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's coming out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, the great Shema, hear, O Israel. But then he says the second greatest commandment is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Would you know the context? You know the Old Testament verse that he's quoting there? It's Leviticus chapter 19. And the context for that command to love your neighbor as yourself is all about what Paul is talking about here, tolerating one another, being patient with one another. He says, if your brother offends you, don't harbor resentment and anger in your heart, but rather, what? Rebuke him 
for you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What? Rebuking my neighbor is a form of love? Absolutely. Why is that? Well, because the opposite is what? Harboring anger and resentment. You see, there are some sins in the community that rise to the level where we realize, you know what? This really was a serious fault, right? This is something that threatens to, to, to breach our relationship. And yet we, many of us in this room, Southerners, sometimes think, well, the loving thing to do is to be nice. Just not say anything about it. But Paul would say, actually, that's not bearing with one another in love. Because when someone has seriously offended you, if, if, if you just ignore it, you know what you're going to do? You're going to harbor resentment and anger in your heart. And so Paul says, no, we need to actively be about not only forgiving one another, but when necessary, rebuking one another to the end of what? Restoring fellowship with one another. Bear with one another in love. Sometimes we don't need to say anything. Love covers a multitude of sins. Other times we need to speak up. This leads to the sixth proposition. Paul enjoins and encourages and exhorts the Ephesian congregation to walk with eagerness. Eagerness to preserve, protect, guard the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's fascinating here that really the, the first two sets of virtues are about how love teaches us basically to cool it. How love teaches us to, to, to lower the temperature of our spirit, of our, of our will, of our appetite, right? Don't think too much of yourself. Have a humble self-regard, right? Don't blow your top. Be gentle. When you're offended, be patient. Have, have, have a long tolerance for offense. But here, Paul doesn't want to encourage us to, to cool it. Paul doesn't want to encourage us to... to to lower the temperature, but he actually wants us to, to raise it. He tells us to be eager, energetic, passionate, if you will, to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This virtue is about how love, rather than tempering our spirit, energizes us and animates us it's the same uh, spirit behind what Paul says in Ephesians 5.14. Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Here's the thing. What Paul is suggesting here, it's not just pride that can be an acid for community. It's not just anger. It's not just an unforgiving spirit and an impatience and intolerance of one another that can be acids for community. But you know what else can destroy community? Sloth. Laziness. A lackadaisical attitude toward the unity of the body. And it's fascinating here. It's, it's a, you know, sometimes... You, you start listening to teaching on virtue and, 
and they seem to kind of line themselves up with different kind of personalities, right? So, uh, oh yeah, that person talks too much, they could use a dose of humility, right? But the trick is, the virtues don't let any of us off the hook, right? The quiet person, the soft-spoken person, right? You can sometimes think of, well, I'm not going to cause any trouble here, right? I, I, I'm just going to mind my own business. Yes, something wrong is going on over here. Yes, maybe some help needs to be done, but who am I to step in? And Paul says, nope, be eager to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be energized. Wake up. Activate yourself toward this calling. Well, this leads us to the last heading, the confidence of Paul's appeal. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's all very nice, Scott. Humility, gentleness, patience. But have you seen the latest news? We're losing the culture war. Have you read the latest blogs? How can you expect us not to freak out? How can you counsel calm repose? How can you counsel such a forgiving posture? And here, of course, is where Paul turns to the reason for this call, right? It, it's a reason that does not lie in ourselves. It's not that he thinks that we're basically pretty good people and if we just hear a little word of encouragement, we'll shape up and, and do better next time, right? But, but the confidence of Paul's appeal, the source of our strength, the example that we follow, the goal of our virtue, Paul says, is God himself. And it's fascinating here that Paul appeals to a sevenfold unity. Seven times in verses four through six, he talks about the oneness of God, of God's works, and of God's gifts. And Paul says this perfect divine unity is the ground for his appeal. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And this leads to the seventh proposition. It's the transcendent perfect unity of God's being, his action, his blessings, that is the source and guarantee of the church's unity. There's one body and one spirit, Paul says. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul, actually end of chapter 1, he first brings up the metaphor, but in chapter 2 he brings in this metaphor of the body again. And describing the unification of Jew and Gentile in Christ, he says he's made them both one in one body through the cross. Well, that language, the making of one out of two, 
is drawn from Ezekiel chapter 37. And it really is the clue for where Paul gets this body metaphor in Ephesians. And it's a clue to how he's thinking about the, the role of the Holy Spirit with respect to the unity of the body. You remember what Ezekiel 37 is about? Them bones, them bones, them dry bones, right? Ezekiel comes out, he sees a vision of a valley of, of, of bones scattered everywhere. And the Lord says to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, Lord, you know. And so the Lord tells Ezekiel to prophesy to the bones. And, and they come up and, and, and the different bones come back together in the right locations. And, and, and the bones are clothed with flesh. And then he says, prophesy to the what? The breath or the spirit. And it says Ezekiel prophesied to the breath and the Holy Spirit animated these bodies. And Ezekiel chapter 37, the Lord says, I am going to cause my breath to enter you and you will live. And he says, I'm going to bring Judah and Israel back and make them one body together. Already in chapter 16, he says, I'm going to include the Gentiles in this as well. And so this is the background for Paul's reminder that we are one body animated by one spirit. You remember we said Paul is writing from the wrong side of history to a church that lives on the wrong side of history. But Paul, in this metaphor, reminds us that we may live on the wrong side of history, but we live by the Spirit of God who has brought us back to life and who has made us one body. We live on the right side of eternity. We breathe the air of the new creation. Paul wants to remind us that, that the division and disunity that characterizes this present age is, 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 is a characterization that's, that's going to be gone soon. And all that's going to last is the one God and the one people of God. So he says, it's time to live like it. There's one body. There's one spirit. There's one hope that belongs to our call. There's one Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the source, the model, the end of Christian virtue. I mentioned earlier that humility and gentleness are often put together in Scripture. And we heard in the assurance of pardon this morning one of those passages where they're put together. It's not a passage where the apostles are telling us how to live, but it's a passage where our Lord Jesus Christ is describing himself. Matthew chapter 11 he says, come to me, all of you weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Why? For I am gentle and humble. Who is the supreme embodiment of Christian virtue? The Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. Though he is God of God, light of light, true God of true God, at the fullness of time, he humbled himself to be born of a virgin. He, he was willing to come and walk among us, his lowly creatures, his rebellious creatures. And he exemplified not only supreme humility, but supreme gentleness. Remember what Peter says about our Lord. When he was reviled, he did not revile 
in return. If anyone has ever been in the right when they were wronged, it was our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet out of his commitment to go to the cross, he did not return evil for evil, but patiently bore our stripes in his body on the tree that we might be healed. He is the supreme embodiment of patience. You remember how Paul describes the Lord in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, he saved me, though I was a persecutor of the church, that he might demonstrate in me his perfect patience. You want to know how patient Jesus is with sinners? Paul says, look at me. I was the best persecutor of the church that money can buy. And yet our patient Lord Jesus Christ saved me. And then what about the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? Well, Ephesians chapter 2 has already told us, he himself is our peace. What's the bond of peace that ties us together? The blood of Christ, which reconciles us not only to God, but reconciles us to one another and gives us reason to forgive each other when we sin against each other. And then, of course, the last unity Paul mentions in this great statement of confidence, the, the great foundation for his appeal. There is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And this, I think, is, is Paul's final answer to the question. You know, Paul, how can you expect us to be a humble and gentle and patient people in the world that we live in? Don't you know what's going on? Don't you know what she said? Don't you know what he did? Well, Paul's ultimate answer is, how can I expect you to live like this? Because our God reigns. There is one God and Father of all who's over all. He's through all. He is in all. Right? Part of the anxiety that, that leads to, to, to our, our constant anger, our, our constant desire to, to grab what is ours and make sure no one else takes it, right, is that we think that if we don't look out for number one, no one else will. And you know what Paul wants to say is, actually, number one looks out for you. So you don't have to look out for yourself. Our God reigns. Our Father reigns. The one who sent his own son to shed his blood for our sins. The one who has put his Holy Spirit in our hearts is our Father. And whatever he wills, he does in heaven and earth and the seas and all their depths. And he does all these things together for our good. We, we have a rule in my house that we don't have any serious conversations after 8 o'clock. And the reason is, is because I'm tired after 8 o'clock. Our kids are all old enough now that I'm probably the first one in bed every night. So... Uh, Anything that important, any conversations, you know, they have to be had in the morning, in the daytime, when it's light outside. Uh, but I have some, some good friends, uh, and Richard and Melissa are their names, and Melissa likes to tell the story of, 
of them having intense conversations in the evening before bed. And uh, it could be about work, it could be about family, it could be about situations at the church. And she says, Richard has this thing that he does and it annoys her and she loves him for it at the same time. She says, Richard just pulls up the blanket and he closes his eyes and she says, what are you doing? Why aren't you freaking out? Why aren't you worried? Right? Why aren't you going to saw on this a little bit longer with me? And Richard's answer is, I'm resting under the blanket of God's sovereignty. How can Paul expect us to live lives of humility, gentleness, patience? How can he expect us to be energetic about preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Because by faith in Christ, we are resting in God's sovereignty. The world around us may be going crazy, but, but we have the mind of Christ. We have the capacity by the Spirit who dwells within us to cultivate a different sensibility, a different way of life. And, and indeed, in doing so, we have an opportunity not only to, to glorify God in this age, not only to, to build up the body of Christ, but to be a witness to a world that wants unity and does not know how to find it. Because we can point to the one who is the only ground that can bring diverse people together in one body through the cross. God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Lord Jesus Christ who sits at his right hand. The spirit who has been poured out who dwells in our hearts, who opens our lips that we might cry, Abba, Father. And so, brothers and sisters, Christ Church, let us walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And then let's go to sleep at night and rest under the blanket of God's sovereignty. Let's pray. Our great God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you have not only saved us by your grace, but that you've also called us to walk in your presence in a manner that corresponds to the great grace that you've given us in Christ. We ask that by your spirit you would help us more and more every day to cultivate these virtues that contribute to the building up of the body of Christ, that form an excellent witness to the world around us, but above all that honor you, our one and true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.